Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. After 12 years at Phillips Andover, Reverend Ann Gardner joined Harvard Westlake in 2020 as the school's chaplain. While prior to Ann's arrival, the framing of her position was, in the words of Rick Commons, an entrepreneurial chaplaincy, Ann had no idea how unorthodox it would actually become. Ann spent the first year of the job remote from Los Angeles, and then the following working with students and adults who were still adjusting psychologically and spiritually to the fear and isolation of a global pandemic. In its aftermath, Anne sees her role as helping community members ask the big questions, such as, who am I? How do I decide right from wrong? Whom do I emulate? And what gives my life meaning? In Anne's case, life was given meaning by two brave and resilient parents, a mom who became a biochemist, and her dad, a World War II hero and amputee. It was they who inspired Anne's sense of gratitude and public service, as well as her commitment to a somewhat unlikely career as an ordained minister. Anne admits that as a gay woman, she carries an unusual combination of characteristics for clergy, but that she actually enjoys leaning into this cognitive dissonance in others as a way to demonstrate both a common humanity and also the many spiritual paths to intellectual and religious leadership. Anne Gardner on the many forms of faith at Harvard Westlake. This is The Supporting Cast. Supporting cast. Thanks so much, Eli. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're excited to talk to you. And um, for those who don't know you out in the community, you were at Andover for the last 12 years and then joined us right before the pandemic is kind of when you were officially hired. Is that right? That's correct. I had a talk, a little chat with Rick Commons, our current head of school, yeah. in the summer of 2019. And was offered the job at that point and accepted that job with the proviso that I would come a year later Ah. because I had already signed my contract to Phillips Andover. And I didn't think Rick would want anybody that would break a contract anyway. So we agreed to delay my coming until the fall of 2020. And then, of course, the pandemic hit in the right. class, sort of in the March timeframe of 2020. And so almost my entire first year here at Harvard Westlake was done remotely. I didn't actually physically move here until April of that year. So I'm coming up on the end of my second full year at Harvard Westlake, most of which has been here, but a good share of which has not. Right. So you were still in Massachusetts, I guess, for that first year, pretty much? I was. I just commuted from Boston from a different time zone in a different geographic location. So I guess that that's a good entree into, you know, my first question kind of of every guest is, how are you doing? And obviously it's been several years of a pandemic now, and we feel like we might be slowly coming out of it. And the masks are now not required, but are recommended at Harvard-Westlake. So it's, it's not quite as strict as it used to be. 
The first question, noting that we're all sort of coming out of this strange haze, how are you and Beth and sort of your family doing uh, at the moment? I could speak for Beth, I hope, and say we feel so fortunate mm. to be part of this community. The support from the administration, all of the support given from the community health office for both our adult community and our student community, the enormous medical testing, mask provisions, all of that stuff have made us feel so welcome and so safe. And you could tell that our health was always the first priority for the school, which can make a huge difference, particularly as somebody who's brand new to the community, yeah. really feeling that was wonderful and just a lovely coincidence that this school happens to be located in very beautiful, very sunny, very warm <laughs> Los Angeles, where we could really grasp, fully grasp having an outdoor lifestyle, which in time of COVID, when so right. many of us spent so many hours and days and weeks inside and sheltered away from everyone and everything, just being able to be outside comfortably yeah. for nearly the entire year made a huge impact on me emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and of course, physically. So I have to say, I'm not sure I could have found a better place to have COVID or be in the COVID pandemic times than here at Harvard Westlake and here in Los Angeles. That's great to hear. But you kind of made reference to the reality that so many of us were closed off from the world for a long time. And you've made mention that this was a more difficult time psychologically for students and for the adults on campus than we maybe even realize. You've sort of uh, referred to this time as a deep grieving or a general exhaustion that so many of us have as educators, as parents, as human beings over the last couple of years. How does that impact your role as chaplain at Harvard-Westlake? How can you, in your role, help make a difference in helping us all improve our psyche? I think for us, as well as really everyone else in the world, living in a time of such uncertainty yeah. that has been pervaded with such conflicting information, where it's difficult to assess for all of us what really is the truth, how we should react to that, I think you picked the right word. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting for people. And for the kids, you know, they're here in this wonderful crucible time in their lives. They want to be with their friends. They're looking forward to all the events that school offers. They're in this very social time. And so the isolation, I think, particularly for the students, yeah. has been very very difficult. And all of the adults on this campus has done a yeoman's job in trying to relay the information they need to relay through the academic coursework, do it in a way that's technologically interesting and with a certain amount of technological savvy, but also with a kindness and a caretaking. And I think to be a chaplain at a school at this particular junction is a real challenge, but also a real opportunity. And I think people need someone to listen. They need someone to recognize the struggle that they're having. I, of course, can't fix COVID-19, but I yeah. think I can be among the people that reflects back to this community a sense of hope, a sense of optimism, a sense of gratitude, in particular for the enormous effort and energy 
the adults have put in to making this as normal a time as we possibly can. And what does that look like practically at the school? I mean, there are moments in a community like ours when a school community might experience loss or there's a tragic event locally or in the world and it's so helpful to have someone like you who can bring context and bring comfort to a community. What does it look like on a day-to-day basis to be a chaplain at Harvard-Westlake? I think one of the keys for me, and again, this is just a coincidence, is that I'm new. I'm an unknown factor. And so people don't have a pre-COVID relationship with me. And it gives me the opportunity every time I come to campus and I see new people to introduce myself, because of course I don't know them. A mm-hmm. lot of times I've seen them just on a box and a screen as you have. Yeah. And start that conversation. And where some people might maybe previously feel a little awkward or tentative about particularly getting to know a clergy person <laughs> in this brand new crazy world we live in, all of those things have sort of fallen to the side. So I have opportunities to have conversations all the time because I can just walk up to anybody and say, I don't think we've met yet. My name is Ann Gardner. And off we go, off to the races. And all you need to do, almost always, is just to give people the opportunity and they'll go where they want to go. And you can see the people who need the support. And frankly, I've actually gotten a lot of good information from the people in the upper administration about people who might need a little extra support. You know, could you watch out for this one? Could you check in on this one? Of course I can. Easy, easy to do. And these are kids and adults in the community? Correct, correct. When you, you referenced sitting down with Rick Commons when he invited you very shrewdly to come to Harvard-Westlake, and then you had to wait a year at Andover before you could finally come, and then you had to wait another year during COVID. But you had referenced that he talked about an entrepreneurial chaplaincy at Harvard-Westlake. What did that mean in your mind when you were considering, you know, sitting there at Andover, you're at this wonderful institution coming out to Harvard-Westlake. What was exciting about that opportunity? Rick had that same question for me. We actually met on the East Coast. He was visiting family, partly on vacation, and he came to Groton, which is just down the road from Andover, and the place that he was employed as head of school prior to coming to Harvard-Westlake. And I had not actually met nor heard of Rick. So when he first called me, it was truly a cold call. I did not know anything about the school, nor did I know anything about him. But he said he was going to be a couple of towns over. And did I have time to just come chat with him? And so I thought, sure, sure. And so I wandered over to Groton and sat down with Rick for actually a number of hours. And he talked to me about the school, about its arc and its trajectory. And the fact that through two very different circumstances, the prior chaplaincy program had come to a close. And because the school had officially severed its ties with the Episcopal Church, meaning the Harvard School for Boys, no longer had an affiliation with the Episcopal Church. The chaplaincy program had gone fallow for a number of years, but there were things that happened that made him think, maybe we need a soulful center. I'm not sure we need a traditional chaplaincy program, but I think we need someone, and maybe that someone is you. So he said, let's just talk about what that could look like. And then with the pandemic, 
then it became a very non-traditional chaplaincy just because we weren't even all together. But in some ways, when I first started, I did all of the things that traditional chaplaincy program would do. We had community chapel every week. I provided sort of those seminal liturgical services for the holidays for all different kinds of groups. I tried to widen the net to not just be about our Judeo-Christian shared history, but always with an eye toward what does this school really need? Where is it evolving? Where is it moving toward? What population is here now and how can I best give that support? And Rick, to his credit, saw that before any of it even happened and gave me permission to really color outside of the lines if I felt like that's what was needed. Truthfully, Eli, there are precious few opportunities in institutionalized religion where people allow you to color outside of the lines. Hmm. They don't even allow you to go near the lines. I mean, everybody has a very regimented idea about what clergy should do, what they should provide, what things are best. Even, you know, people sit in the same seats when they come to all these different congregational gatherings. So to be able to just look around me and think about how that might look has been really wonderful. And I think people have responded to that. So for instance, here's a sort of off-the-cuff story. I got an email in the fall from five senior boys who invited me to be on their dodgeball team. Now, I know your viewers cannot actually see me, but I am probably not of the age where I would normally sign up for high school dodgeball. And I wrote back to them and I said, you guys are so sweet. Do you really want me to come and do this? I said, yes, Rev. Absolutely. We need you. We want you. Please be part of the team. And so the name of their team was Test Optional. I said, okay, Test Optional. I will join this team. And I went on those days and they were very kind to me. They did throw the ball at me. I asked that they not throw it at my head. They were gracious enough to not throw it at my head. (laughs) But I had so much fun. And, you know, so I'm not just stuck up in the chapel somewhere. I'm actually moving around, living, breathing with the kids, doing fun things, playing dodgeball, talking to the kids in the theater program about their show um, in the fall, which was based on the Book of Job. Just whatever it is that they want, they've invited me into their community, which is really wonderful thing. And you mentioned, you know, Harvard-Westlake is a secular school, but it has these religious roots. You mentioned particularly on the Harvard side. Now that you've spent a little bit of time both virtually and now you're actually physically on campus, what do you feel like the school does need now? That's a great question. In my opinion, yeah, there are a number of liturgical devotional opportunities for these kids, primarily because it is a day school, unlike my previous appointment. Right. So students are with their parents, and if they are people of faith, they have an opportunity to immerse themselves into a community that they feel comfortable with and have that kind of life. That said, I think that teenagers in particular are grappling with what I would call the big questions. Mm. Who am I? How do I decide what's right? And what's wrong? 
who do I want to emulate? What gives my life meaning? And for students, many of which have not been raised in religious households, these are, in their minds, intellectual questions. But they're not for me. They're Mm. spiritual questions for me. So I feel like regardless of whether the school is a secular school or a religious school, those questions, conversation with kids about those questions is always first on the plate. Because that exists regardless of what lens you happen to use. Those questions are always at the forefront of every adolescent's development. I think for the students that happen to be part of minority religious populations, Mm -hmm. I think they're accustomed to being ignored and unseen. Not necessarily on purpose, but just by virtue of them being part of a minority population. So I tried very hard to see those people. So for instance, we have an opportunity now on Fridays for Juma prayers for our Muslim students and faculty to have a time, a place, and prayer rugs and privacy opportunities and ablution opportunities to participate in prayer on campus because it happens to fall during our academic cycle, unlike most of the other religious holidays. I've had the Buddhist chaplain at Yale come to recognize Bodhi Day as part of our community chaplain series. I send out routinely emails just from the perspective of religious literacy to let people know these are the kinds of things that are going on in the world. These are the religious holidays. You might actually see them in some fashion or another. Just important for you to know about because we are a school. Learning is our primary responsibility. So different kinds of things in addition to the very traditional things that I would normally be accustomed to doing. So those are the big spiritual questions. I wonder if there are also kind of academic ones in the way of religious literacy. I know you've mentioned that you know we're not a school that teaches one religion or another religion or that we all should believe one thing or another, but you've also made mention that having literacy about not just the most popular religions, but minority religions as well. But even some of the big questions, I personally did not grow up in a very religious household. There's there's probably things that I should know about major religions that I don't because I was never taught because I didn't go to religious school. Do you think there's a place for that kind of religious literacy at Harvard-Westlake? I do. I yeah. would love to see as part of our academic curriculum for there to be classes in religion and philosophy and ethics. And again, not from a devotional lens, not from a sacramental or liturgical lens, but from an experience from the Adam's apple up to intellectually grapple with this material. And I think students would be surprised at how often religious undertones are part of their other classes. For instance, English. So many texts make reference to all different kinds of things that have a religious root but they don't recognize them because it's not part of what they've come to know. I think to understand religion intellectually is to have an entirely different lens on how the world works, how political systems work, how conflicts have arisen, how even financially, culturally, all these different countries globally that we are immersed in, we're such a small world now, that it's so wonderful to know that information. It gives you an insight into how best to approach all those different governments, cultures, etc., and how to work for a peaceful world. 
I want to get to your upbringing, where you grew up and how you became kind of what you have become. But I first actually want to mention you are an author and have a new book out. And just so I get the title right, it's called And So I Walked, Reflections on Chance, Choice, and the Camino de Santiago. And it is about a 500-mile walk across Spain. Is that right? That is right. Yes. Wow. Um, wow. It was a number of years ago now, but it was actually at a function at Andover. And I met someone who, because I was a minister, assumed I knew about the Camino de Santiago mm. in Spain. I did not. So she helped my own religious literacy by telling me about this amazing 500-mile path that stretches across the entire width of northern Spain, from the foothills of Pyrenees Mountains in France all the way to Santiago, which has a cathedral under which it is reported to be the remains of St. James, who's the patron saint of Spain, are interred. That's the story. So for literally thousands of years, people have been making this pilgrimage, have been walking this path wow. from France across to Santiago. And now there's numerous paths. So when I heard about it, I'm not sure why, Eli, but I was immediately not only intrigued, but instantly kind of taken with this idea of walking 500 miles. And I had always enjoyed walking it. It's sort of been my go-to coping mechanism for nearly my entire life. So I heard more about it and I started to conscript this plan about actually doing it. It wasn't actually until I was walking that I thought to myself, you know, my whole life I had wanted to write a book. I've worked as a writer for a good portion of my professional life um, as a freelance writer. I worked as a sports writer for a period of time, but I, I always wanted to write a book and never really felt like I had something with enough gravitas or importance to actually spend that much time, that much ink and other people's time to put together something of that length. But when I was walking, I thought maybe this is the thing I've hmm. been waiting for, for my whole life long. And of course, as any writer would do, I brought along a journal in my pack during that time and each night would scribble notes. And it was from that journal that the nascent pieces of this particular book came into being. And so the title comes from that because whenever I found myself in a place of joy or in a place of grief or in a place of uncertainty, my first coping mechanism was always to walk. You know, I'm so upset, and so I walked. I'm so excited, and so I walked. But whatever the thing was, that was what I did. And this time, I really did it, 500 <laughs> miles worth. And what was the spiritual journey? Kind of what did you learn from that? I mean, you've, you've spent a whole book talking about it, I'm sure. But are there certain things that were, once you sort of went through the exercise of writing the book, were there certain things that were kind of crystallized in your view from that experience that helped you grow spiritually in some way? Most people, I think, at this point, do the walk for the physical task of it. They want to know if they're capable of doing the 500-mile walk. Yeah. And that was a little piece of what I wanted to do. But prior to my actually getting on the trail, when I would tell people I wanted to walk across Spain, they would say, Anne, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Like, I would never do that. Okay, okay, that's fine. So I kind of made it, and truthfully, I wasn't even sure at that point why I wanted to do it. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to take this task on the road, and whenever I meet someone on the path, I'm going to ask them, 
why are you doing this? Ah. And just to get a flavor of all of the different reasons why people would choose to do this at various points in their life, various nationalities, genders, etc. And so I took me 37 days to walk across Spain. So for 37 days, when I came across people, hikers or pilgrims or walkers, I would say, so tell me why you're doing this. And almost to a person, they said the exact same thing. They said, I'm heartbroken. I'm heartbroken. So for some people, they were going through a divorce. For some people, they were having some kind of significant friction with their children. For some people, they had just lost a spouse or a parent. For some people, they were struggling with drug or alcohol addiction and the tumult that they had created in their own life because of their addiction. You know, the reasons or the seeds of it were very, very different. But the answer was always the same. I'm heartbroken. And so they came literally to exorcise out that energy, to somehow catapult it out of their heart, out of their souls, literally out of their bodies by punishing those 500 miles, you know, every day over and over and over again. And there was something crystallizing about that answer that made me wonder, why am I out here? And when I wrote the book, I sort of did it in two different thought streams. Some of the book is about the mechanics of actually doing a long distance hike and about doing this one in particular. Yeah. But the underlying chapters draw pieces from my own story about how I got to the point where walking 500 miles seemed like the right thing to me. So I'll leave it to your readers to take that journey with me, but it was a labor of love to write that book. Yeah. And it was certainly a labor of love yeah. to walk that trail. It really, it changed my life, Eli. It changed my life to walk the Camino. Let's get to your beginnings and origins, your first steps. Uh, wh- where did you grow up, Anne? I grew up outside of Boston. I've lived a lot of different places, both in the United States and overseas, but my initial Upbringing was in Boston. I was a public school kid and uh, went to public schools all the way through elementary school and high school, and then went on to a Jesuit college at my mother's insistence. Mm. My mother was a devout Irish Catholic woman who had gone to Catholic school herself and actually forbade me from going when I was younger, feeling that that community was too homogenous. And that she wanted me to sort of be in very mixed groups. But she really felt at the moment where I sort of grappled with my ethical self, that she wanted that to be within a Jesuit environment. And so the great 28, as we call them in my family, the 28 Jesuit colleges were all options for me to consider for my college application process. It was far easier and less stressful then than it is now. Um, But I did end up in a Jesuit college. And of course... She was right. My closest friends for my whole life long, I made in college. It had an enormous impact on the person I grew up to be. And I actually completed my education and joined immediately out of college something called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, which is very similar to the Peace Corps in that you go off for a period of time living in community, working in fields of social justice, working at very modest means. I was paid $50 a month 
That was my salary for the JVC. Now, of course, they provided certain things for us as a community, but that was my spending money. And it just sort of gave me a taste of what it meant to be without. Just a taste. I mean, obviously, I couldn't erase years of orthodontia and (laughs) being taken care of and all of the emotional support that offers. But it, it gave me a taste that the world was not that way and that it was my responsibility to help change the world. And what were some of the posts? Where were you kind of stationed during that time? I was in Montana, in northwest Montana, just south of the Blackfoot Indian Reservation in a town called Great Falls. It's really just below Glacier National Park. I think some people might sort of know that landmark. Um, But otherwise, I don't think most people would know Great Falls. It was really just a military outbase for our own U.S. forces and some cattle ranches and not much more. But I ended up working in a shelter for battered women and abused children. That My clients were women and children from the reservation. It was an eye-opening experience, particularly at 21 years old, to be in that situation, to not be married myself, um, to not have children myself, obviously, at that tender age, and to get a glimpse at how very difficult life could be. And what kind of drove this interest in public service and in, in serving others? Was it sort of the Jesuit education? Did it come from kind of a religious upbringing? Did it come from your parents? Yes, yes, and yes. I really, when I think back on it, the two biggest impacts on my life are clearly my parents. Mm. My mom was a fierce, intellectual, curious, smart She was a radical. She really was. She was a woman born out of her time. And I think she had a very hard life because she was born in a time where women had only a handful of options and professional careers was not one of them. Hmm. Despite that, in the 1940s, she found her way to college as an Irish immigrant and was a chemistry major, became a chemist and took a job in a Boston area hospital and worked for Dr. Jocelyn, who became the founder of the famous Jocelyn Clinic that is the flagship hospital affiliation for people with diabetes. Wow. So this was her personal challenge, and she really broke barriers. She broke so many barriers, but I think for large portions of her life felt very constrained by the culture of the time. My dad actually was a career military man. And entered the military as a very young teenager in World War II, back when you could sign up at 14 and 15 years old, not like today. He was part of the Normandy D-Day invasions. Is that right? Wow. And as part of those wartime skirmishes, he lost his right leg in the field when a grenade was thrown at him and exploded, and some very brave soldier jumped out of his foxhole, ran and retrieved my father from the battlefield, drug him back into the foxhole, put a tourniquet on his leg, and saved his life. So he was physically disabled for nearly his entire life, but he never left the military. He just took a desk job for the remainder of his career, but he gave me so much personal direction. I get my discipline from my dad. Mm -hmm. 
I get my sense of punctuality <laughs> from my dad. I get my sense of dedication from my dad. I get my sense of patriotism from my dad. I certainly get my sense that I am so lucky. So many people have gone through so much, and he never once complained about what happened to him or felt sorry for himself. And because he never did, I never did. So the combination of having this woman that taught me that libraries were cathedrals and that the intellectual life was how you should allocate your time and days and that the most important thing for you to do according to your life was to learn and to help others. And then my dad giving me the structure and I actually have his disposition as well. That powerful combination really, I think, molded me into the person I am. And the other things that I've done are just offshoots of those two very, very powerful influences on my life. And I'm grateful for both of them. Well, it feels like the commonality there is perseverance, right? Different types of perseverance with your mom pursuing a career that was probably not a lot of doors open to women and then your father's physical ailment and persevering and staying in the military despite that. It starts to make sense that their daughter would want to walk 500 miles uh, <laughs> it does. And, 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 and have that kind of perseverance uh, in adulthood. Well, it's funny because when I asked my friends, you know, if they ever were concerned about me doing this walk or finishing this walk, all of them said, no. If huh. you have to crawl, Anne, if you have to crawl, you will do it. I have no doubt that you can do it. My question remains, why? Why are you doing it? But not, can you do it? I am very much a dog with a bone. I have a very tenacious personality. And so uh, if sometimes it takes me a while, but I, I do, in the end, get the job done. Well, it, it gets to sort of your role as a chaplain and as clergy. You know, when we spoke, there's this dissonance around you and your role because you are clergy, but you're also a woman, which throws some people, and your sexual orientation also throws some people too. I wonder if that combination and you pursuing this despite those attributes, or maybe because of those attributes, if you could kind of talk to, to that experience and maybe how your parents reacted to that as well. I think I am an unusual combination of characteristics when yeah. it comes to clergy, which is changing, of course, it's changing. But it's still largely white men that are Christian ministers yeah. that are encouraged to consider this kind of vocation and that ultimately find their way into seminaries and are tapped to be the leaders of various congregations. I can't speak for other religious denominations, but for the Christian spectrum, and there are some traditions where only men are allowed to be leaders of the church. So in my own faith of my youth, the Catholic Church, this was not an opportunity and continues not to be an right. opportunity. So I needed right. to find another way when I felt like I was called to a leadership role in a very certain way within the institutional church. But I think actually it really works to my advantage because it's so disarming to people. Mm. I can see it in their face. that It doesn't make sense to them. When they see my clergy collar and my black clergy shirt, and they see my wife, and they see my gender, it just, I see the confusion come across their face, which gives me an opportunity to show them that being a person of faith and being a leader of faith communities can look all different kinds of ways. Yeah. And 
it allows them to grow just by virtue of being in front of them. It allows them to see in maybe a different way and consider in a different way. And I always assume good intentions. I don't assume people are going to be upset in some way or deriding of the fact that as a woman, I'm a clergy person or as a gay person, I'm a clergy person. And I think it helps break that barrier too, that even for people who don't quote unquote approve of what they would call my lifestyle. <laughs> they always follow it with, but I like you, Anne. And I was like, okay, but I'm that thing too. I am all of those things. And maybe you can think, rethink your position. Maybe this gives you an opportunity to think that all different kinds of people might be helpful in being leaders of communities of faith or just plain leaders. Well, you told a funny, so I met your wife, Beth, at a golf event, and she was giving my daughter, who's three and a half, golf lessons, which was very cute, and she loved that. But you told a funny story about who Beth thought that she might marry someday. Yes. So Beth, by the way, she is great with kids. Oh, my God. She's a baby amazing, whisperer. Child amazing. Amazing. Like amazing with kids. <laughs> I've never met a kid that doesn't immediately love her. So there's just some kind of charism about her that's um, very wholesome and engaging and loving. But when I first met Beth and we started dating, we eventually got married. And then many years later, we were having a conversation. I'm not even sure how this conversation started, but we were talking about being young girls and what we quote unquote wanted to be when we grew up. And of course, people ask you this, adults ask you this when you're a kid. And I don't necessarily think they expect you to have a well thought out answer, but they ask you this nonetheless. And she suddenly realized that when she was a girl and people would ask her what she wanted to be, her answer was always the same. She wanted to be a minister's wife. <laughs> she was deeply involved as a kid in the Methodist church of her youth and was part of the choir and the youth group and loved that whole ambiance and saw herself as someone who wanted to be part of the caretaking arm of the church of her girlhood. And of course, she had no idea that her wish would come true in this very untraditional way that it did. But I guess it just shows that sometimes you are destined. You just don't know what road you'll need to take in order to get to the finish line. Lastly, Anne, what do you love most about doing this work? You spent 12 years at Andover. You've only spent a short time now at Harvard-Westlake, particularly in person. But are there moments you've had with students or in communities where you really feel like you've been able to make a difference either broadly to a large community or maybe individually with a student or with a community member? I think they're both. And I think certainly I take great care and responsibility knowing that I have been, by virtue of my ordination, given a place behind the pulpit and that I can rise up in front of groups in all different scenarios and speak on behalf of institutionalized religion and on behalf of faith. And so I take great care in preparing any kind of public remarks, whether they're within, you know, a sermon, a community chapel program, or just other kinds of remarks. I know that very few people are given a voice and that I should be very careful with that gift that has been given to me. But truthfully, that's actually not what propelled me to ordain ministry because I'm actually quite introverted 
And I would like nothing better than to never, ever get up in front of people and talk again. (laughs) The writer in me is more my natural disposition, not the public speaker. So here's the flip side of that coin, which I have felt over and over and over again. When you're a clergy person, you get to be part of all of the most tender, vulnerable moments of someone's life. And some of them can be completely joy-filled, whether it's the birth of a baby or somebody getting married or any kind of sort of marker. That's a wonderful thing. But you also get to pull back the curtain and be with them in the most difficult and painful moments of their life without question. People just open and welcome you into those moments. And you really see, you see people without their guard up, without their flesh on. You see into them in a way that, for the most part, we don't let people see us. And by virtue of my clergy collar, I'm just kind of automatically granted that access. And it is transformative for me. I hope I live up on the other side to doing whatever I can do to make those moments either more joy-filled or less painful. But for me, I get way more from it than I ever give to it. But both of those things, I think, are the side A and side B of what it means to be an ordained minister. And I get to do it across generations because I work for a school. So I have, I'm surrounded by kids every day, but I also am surrounded by adults of all different stripes and variations. And so I get to see it across the whole spectrum, on stage and behind the curtain both. Well, before we go, Anne, there are three standard questions that are part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles, where you now live and where you enjoy the, the weather is much nicer here compared to Boston. So we are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So the first question is, what is Reverend Ann Gardner's favorite movie? Oh, this is going to embarrass me because I'm going to actually tell the truth. Okay. No, that's what we want. I love movies. I'm a big, big fan of Ted Walsh and his Cinema Sundays. Yeah. I love all different varieties. But if you ask me my favorite and what movie when I come across it on the TV channels that I always stop and watch the rest of it, it's a movie called Point Break with Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. There you go, Eli. Okay. It's a surfing movie. It's crazy. But for some reason, I love it. I love that movie. So Point Break is my favorite movie. Wow. I was not expecting that. Although I am to admit it. Yes. (laughs) I was not expecting that. I love Point Break. Do you know that there is a, in LA, there is something called Point Break Live. Um, Yes, I know. And no one can see your face, but you, you look very, very intrigued by this. I don't know if it still happens, but for my birthday one year, my wife and I organized some friends to go and they do a live reenactment of Point Break where they bring someone out of the crowd to be Johnny Utah, the Keanu Reeves character, and then they act out Point Break on stage around this character that's been plucked out of the audience. And it's hysterical because the movie is wild and fun and a little ridiculous. And so... um. Did not expect you to say that, but that is an excellent choice, Reverend Gardner. <laughs> I beg you to invite me to that event. Whenever it happens, I beg you I'll, to invite I'll me. find out. They do it in Hollywood. I'll have to see it. Some improv group, I think, that does it or something. So I'll, I'll send you the details. Thanks, uh, Eli. Sure. <laughs> Second question, what is your favorite, now that you've moved to Los Angeles, what's your favorite meal that you found here in, in L.A.? That's a tough one because, for the most part, we have not been allowed in restaurants. Right, right. So I haven't actually 
I know Ed Hugh is is crying right now hearing this. So I haven't <laughs> actually. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he would actually. I could just go over to his house. He could cook because That's he's true. a fantastic cook. So I don't really have a good answer for that question. I'm not a foodie. And I think the best thing I appreciate about the food of Los Angeles is that you can eat it outside. There are so many outdoor cafes. We live right off Ventura. So we often go and find little nooks, but I haven't, I haven't found a place. So it's, that's still out there for me, Eli. I'm still, I'm still working on that answer, I think. Is there something you love at home that, I don't know if you're a cook or if Beth's a cook? I am not a good cook and I was raised by an Irish mother, so Flavor was not big in my household. <laughs> I'm sort of against flavor. So the plainer it is, I mean, my most favorite dessert is bread and butter. That tells you all you need to know. Okay. All right. Simple. What is your favorite place in LA, at least that you found thus far? Well, I have poked my nose across many, many different neighborhoods and places just because I love it here. Yeah. But if I had to pick one that sort of comes immediately to mind, Santa Monica Beach. Mm. Wow, that is so not like the East Coast. The surfers, the depth of the sand, the fact that it's beautiful and not strewn with rocks and shells. And I love Santa Monica Beach. So maybe we can do a combination of Santa Monica Beach time plus point break. That will make the quintessential Get some sushi with day. Ed Who. You know, we'll do all exactly. three. <laughs> we'll just do it all together. The trifecta. <laughs> That's right. So lastly, Reverend Gardner, you've met actually one of my children. You've met Grace, who's three and a half, but um, I have a 10-month-old little girl as well, and I'm always looking for parenting advice. And you know, before we got on and I asked you about influences in your life, you were very quick to say that your parents, and you described it a bit, were number one and number two, or number both number one in terms of, of life influences. Is there anything you can think about from your youth, maybe that you haven't already discussed or you can reinforce things that you've brought up already? that could be instructive to me as I raise, particularly maybe my daughters, any parenting advice you can impart? I guess the one thing I would say, just because I know you're a girl dad. That's right. And that's a wonderful thing to be a girl dad, is that it can be so very easy to err on the side of protection. Mm. It just feels right. It just feels right to protect your girls. And I'm not arguing against that. What I'm encouraging you to think of is for her maybe to have that same message. You know, just you're capable. Hmm. You can do it. You don't need my help. Go out there. Get banged up. Get bruised up. Have your heartbreak. You'll recover. It's okay. You can do it. Mow the lawn. Change the oil. Do it. (laughs) Your daughters yeah. are now shaking their fist at me. Yeah, no! exactly. Dad, why, <laughs> really? Why can't you do it? Well, thank you, Anne. That is very wonderful advice, and I'm sure it is not unlike a lot of advice that you are, are giving on campus each day and, and being a great source of wisdom and a great listener to so many students and adults on campus. So really appreciate you being here and part of the Harvard Westside community and you being part of the sporting cast. Thanks so much, Eli. It was really my pleasure. 